Welcome, my dystopians. I'm Raul Guerrero, and you are listening to the Dystopian Republic. Today's story begins on the sunrise of June 13th, 1952. Even though the sky looked calm with its bedhead, what was happening below it was anything but. It brought the shambles that Bromelia's economy was in out of the darkness. Nowhere else was that more evident than in Bromelia City where all the glitz and glamour that lit bright and stood high for the world to see was gone. It was as if the great expansion the nation underwent during the Four Horsemen era had been erased. In a dorm room at the University of the Capitol, Gabino Jr., Roy Sr., and Sinclair wrote signs calling Gregorio Sr. a corrupt crime boss who would make that gangster who had a scar on his face proud. Their slogans were in response to the taxes he helped his cronies and closest friends evade. Millions in bribes he paid out to them and revolving door between his administration and the Del Brew Norsur Corporation. On one poster, Sinclair molded Gregorio and that gangster's face into one with fine colored pencils. Roy intently breathed in and out, putting his nerves in a mood that was prepared to die in the streets. Looking out the window, Gabino didn't trust the bird-chirping sunniness one bit. He and his brothers kneeled in a hand-holding prayer that asked God to protect them as they join their friends in stepping into harm's way. Before the presidential chateau was an exceedingly opulent and massive citadel that looked way down on the city. Known as the presidential castle, its roots traced back to when Mexico governed what were then known as the states of Antuscadas, Garcinuras, Yolojia, Reconciel, Rio Nor, Herdilera, Paris del Ortexur, Hier Desert, and Uvalrande. The citadel was the trophy Habsburgo Sr. and his henchpeople won from the state governments that possessed its land and ruled over them. And over a hundred and seven years later, its fortified diamond black and white remained the defining symbol of the Bromelian experience even if a man of Gregorio's character was president. He carried out his morning routine like it was any other day, not worrying about how his country was doing economically. His body was as perfectly proportioned as his belief that Bromelia was still the global superpower he inherited from Cura. Underneath that over-the-top confidence was a desperation that grew more explosive by the day. Gregorio's English breakfast with his wife Innocencia indulged in a humming silence where no words were said and only the meal's progression could be heard. Contrary to the impression made, their love was obsessive and compulsive, just not in a moment where they were putting in a third of their daily nutrition. Unlike her husband, Innocencia constantly feared for her life and was apprehensive 
about what would become of her son, his mate, and that partner's best friend. For that reason, she, behind Gregorio's back, planned something for them should things take a turn for the worse. There were no radios anywhere in the castle, as per request of Innocencia and her husband, making them oblivious to what was on its way to their doorstep. An hour later, at Central Pond Middle School, what started out as an annual field day that sought to reward students for their hard work during test week had become an assembly to rally the campus into marching to the castle and demand that Gregorio step down. Then the school's principal, Habsburgo III, led kids like Clydette, Onofre Jr., and Lere out of campus and in the direction of Brumel Square. For a man who was well into his 90s, he was just as, if not more, nimble and alert than his students, but the size and enthusiasm of his march coupled with the signs making a moving rainbow out of it wasn't representative of every kid or teacher in Bromelia. At the same time over at West Hills Middle School, its principal, Carlisle III, led a strut that stomped in solidarity with Gregorio, Ferrino, Cobura, and Catalino V were three such students who marched with them by order of their families. Each step they planted reminded them of the disownment they faced if they broke from the pack. Stress levels were through the roof at Radizoro, where its hosts went insane, having gone days without any real sleep. They told listeners ad nauseum that there was no economic turmoil in the country and that if such hardships existed, they were part of an effort by the Marxists to drench Bromelia in blood and urine. There is no doubt that everyone who worked there had the weight gain, withering skin, and hair loss to show for their distress. In the large mansion, Joby Sr. was taking a lunch break from his violin lesson when he caught his father, Preston III, Mother Corliss, Brother Preston IV, and Sister Maisie eating up the irrational rants. He left them to enjoy their latest Radizoro meal and locked himself in the bathroom. In the tub, Joby cradled himself and silently yelled his breakdown out, giving Gregorio one middle finger after another for taking his family away from him. That moment was the third of its kind, but he didn't know that he wasn't the only elite kid who was hurting. When noon came around, thousands packed and marched down the square, chanting for economic reform and price controls. Also, they wanted Gregorio to resign for aiding in the betting tax evasion, bribery, waging aggressive war, and violating the oath of office. The march was led by Alexis Sr., Eugenio Jr., Gabino Sr., and Habsburgo V, four senators from the recently suspended Federal Congress. Approaching it from ahead, a counter-protest led by Grimsby Sr., Adelino Sr., Bertha Ferd, and Allured Sr. supported Gregorio, such that they wore yellow jackets or pinned 
horned crosses onto their suits. It too was a crowded demonstration of a strength far into the quadruple digits, telling Gregorio that he had their unequivocal support. The counter-protesters called the charges against him a conspiracy by the Communist Party to wipe away Bromelia's heritage, its history, and everything the nation had accomplished since its founding. When their opponents were in sight, both sides developed a first to stick it to the crowd ahead of them and sway those who were on the fence. At the push of a diaphragm and cage of muscles, a coastal gale slammed in at the velocity of an industrial fan. The senators saw that as their signal to instruct their staffers to let countless stacks of papers fly around into the skies like butterflies during a great migration. One pile was of checks Gregorio wrote to many of Delbru Norsur's highest level executives, receiving thank you letters afterwards. In return, those same business people propped up municipal, provincial, and federal legislators who passed laws that resulted in him being a de facto king whom no one could touch. That pile went up against another that showed Alexis shaking hands with a general whose mustache was thick, dense, and polished. For many, it was unthinkable to see a bear from the east stand in harmony with a honeybee from the west, but out of left field, two to three out of every hundred of Gregorio's supporters took their jackets off, thinking of dropping them on the street like chocolate bar wrappers. This was still significant enough to give Gregorio Jr., Itzasso, and Courtenay a scare that stripped them of their invulnerability. Their legs warmed up more shakily than an engine that could run for its top speed at the slightest instinct. Conversely, Gabino's sons found comfort in the defections that were in need of a push to be completed. In dirty denims, dull shirts, and worn-out shoes, Two groups of teenage wayfarers crept out of the shadows that were the city's outskirts. For the crew led by Brett Sr. and Abby, their journey started thousands of feet above in Lobo Town, where they robbed and stole from its powerful to help the powerless make ends meet. Hailing from Alexisville, they walked into school at 8 in the morning and out of it at 3 in the afternoon. Brett and Abby earned excellent grades, and had their joyful arms around the popular and smart alike. His brains made algebra and geometry effortless, while her brawn made excelling in soccer as easy as tying her shoes. But by night or weekend, they and one out of every four of their peers journeyed to Lobotown to steal tens of thousands of dollars worth of money, jewelry, gemstones, and precious metals, some of which they had on their person or were vainly wearing. The crew, Dean Sr. and Joyce Led, trekked all the way from Alexisville to culminate their months of cruelly stalking its elites, beating up their subordinates, defacing public property, and humiliating the city's children, laughing at the anguish their actions caused. From Lobotown, by way of Cielcardine, they had the same prestige, fanfare, and brainpower that Brett and Abby did, being a far cry 
from the habitual dirt doers they turned into when the sun went down. But while Dean and Joyce's rivals were red in the exoskeleton, their shells were striped a bold yellow and scheming black. Both crews reached the square in time for Hobsbugle III and Carlisle to set free papers that bludgeoned every Brumelian into a wind howling spinal chill. Courtesy of Alexis Jr. and Etchelstone, the papers were Gregorio Sr. and Alexis Sr. at their most animalistic. Its cellulose fibers showed every massacre the Yellow Cross carried out in the name of accomplishing Operation Rootout, including the farm Hiomata cultivated flowers for and the attempt made on the people of Olivaldea. They also exposed the mass homicides the Red Wasps perpetrated on the settlements along the slopes bordering Meseta del Cielo, including one infamous for its devilry and the foiled plot to obliterate Fort Fonton. The papers were horribly graphic in what they photographed before, during, and after those wicked displays of inhumanity. They showed yellow jackets and red wasps taking human life as though it was another afternoon in the office. Some of those same people were among the crowds protesting at the square, catching the eyes of everyone else in no time and leaving them defenseless. Those papers were their message that they were about to pay for the lives they claimed and many more they ruined. Their allies garnered the inclination to evacuate them while their enemies were preparing to tear them apart for murdering in Gregorio's name. Right when the loudness and chaos was about to return, two shots from hunting rifles added it to a comeback that would be even more explosive. Gabino Sr. smelled and saw blood splatter and gun residue on his suit and found himself holding on to Alexis Sr., who was shot twice through his forehead, but somehow still alive. Towards the back of the counter-protest, two rifles were hoisted and aimed above it, belonging to Dean and Joyce, who were giddily smiling at what they just did to the man who had their elders shot down like running deer, orphaning them and their oppos. Gabino's composure was crumbling as Alexis started seeing a light he couldn't see. It was the tragic ending to a friendship that formed when Cura was president. Gabino was a young presidential castle staffer while Alexis worked as her secretary of state. Their professional proximity to her made the communication they were in with her constant. Gabino's eloquent pen strokes turned Cura's policies into marvels of comprehension and coherence. One portion of those plans were Alexis's strategies for the wars in Abeland, West Shetland, Robapel, and Nefuala. Despite how far apart he and Gabino were on Cura's pyramid, they found time to hang out when they weren't on the clock. Those two 
gulped. Sherry shot rifles in the wild and talked the urine out of Gregorio Sr. for pretending his way into being Cura's vice president. And before too long, Gabino Sr. got to know Alexis Jr. and his sisters, Sybil and Elspeth. And Alexis Sr. befriended Gabino Jr., Roy, and Sinclair, forming a knot that was about to get a lot tighter. It was much friendlier and warmer than the scene keeping Bromelia at a standstill. A Guyorod reporter saw Dean and Joyce shoot Alexis Sr., blurting the crime to the newsroom, which broke it into the households tuning in. Her equivalent from Roddy Zorro spun the shooting as the young couple defending themselves from a presidential candidate who was out for more nationalist blood. The news that broke in were on top of what the papers exposed, headlines that the reporters spun to fit their assigned narratives. Few in either demonstration acknowledged their yells in reaction, muting almost all sounds that weren't works of their imagination. Alexis Sr. knew from his dwindling vision and numbing touch that his time was up. He looked up at Gabino Sr. and all his lugubrious supporters, sensing the unambiguousness of their allegiance to him. Alexis noticed the blood and cerebrospinal fluid mix dripping out of his head and onto his clothes and the street. Thinking of the wars he waged as Secretary of State, he dwelled on the prodigious gap between the brutality they unleashed and iniquity it sunk his soldieries into and the social reformer and champion of peace he presented himself as on the campaign trail. The reporter from Guyorod ran to and pleaded with him not to go to that better place without his country. That took whatever repentance Alexis had for the lives his conscience accumulated and deliquested faster than compost in triple-digit heat. Into the reporter's mic, he tearfully and resoundingly called for the Bromelian people to pick up their arms and take back their country by whatever means necessary. Alexis screamed for them not to let the atrocity that's about to claim his life go unpunished. Make sure the generations after them know what was done to him and see to it that every oppressor experiences the pain and trauma that destroyed their victims. His spiritual departure immediately after was as resonant as his final words, molding the grief of his supporters into a rage that was about to break into a targeted frenzy. The same anger putting his son, daughters, and newly widowed wife, Josephine, in the wrong for leaving him to die unhappy and without them at his side. The laughs from Gregorio's supporters tightened into gasps when they beheld the repressed buzz out to sting all the venom it had into them. Dean and Joyce turned a white colder than arctic ice when Brett and Abby laser-focused their bloodlust on them. 
Their nerves quivered, their looks into the pusillanimous caitiffs they relied on, their lackeys to keep hidden. They were versions of the couple that came to be when they were small, at the hands of an ideology they would dedicate their lives to vanquish. Their run for it was protected by the gun battle half of their lackeys waged with every other subordinate from the opposing crew. Hobsbugle III and Carlyle rapidly got their students out of the line of fire, sheltering them in nearby skyscrapers where others who wanted no part of the violence were taking refuge. The blessings they counted were enough to ensure that none of the school kids would be hurt. Eugenio Jr., Gabino Sr., and Hobsbugle V led the crowd that vowed to avenge Alexis Sr., while Grimsby Sr., Adelino Sr., and Bertha Ferd were the spearheads of the side that was hungry to count more bodies on top of the major one they recently garnered. Yet, not every demonstrator was willing to put their lives on the line. Allered Sr., Gabino Jr., Roy, Sinclair, Gregorio Jr., Itzasso, and Courtenay being seven of them. The protection Dean and Joyce got didn't stop Brett or Abby from chasing after them and making sure everyone knew their names, Melio, Hereda, and all. That chase made the former couple internally scream how they do not want to die, leaking that undesire out of their faces which rumbled the latter's hunger for revenge more acidically. It raced through metropolitan streets and on by witnesses who saw the assassination from their workplaces or apartments. Dean and Joyce's hearts beat it faster and harder with each finger point, yell of their name, or call for them to be killed. The cheers Brett and Abby heard those same people scream out pushed them to stretch open their narrowed airways to shorten their distance from the assassins they were after. But the matchless shapes Dean and Joyce were in allowed them to increase their distance to where they were almost outside their pursuers' lines of sight. This ired witnesses into helping Brett and Abby chase down their pursuees in hopes of having a piece of the punishing pie. That help engendered Dean and Joyce's supporters into attacking their pursuers and the people helping them. With the help of those on their side, Brett and Abby gunned down the pursuers' sympathizers in short order. However, that extra time was what Dean and Joyce needed to give them the slip and run into a building that was in the middle of being bulldozed. Almost unable to hear the frenzied gunfighting, they collapsed onto the rubble-faded floor in excruciating exhaustion. Joyce looked up at the daylight's fine beam, was short of breath and drenched in cooling sweat. Turning over to her boyfriend's pensive sit, she thought of her parents as he brought his mom and dad to his mind, falling into a duo keyed up plea for them to come back. Where Dean and Joyce came from, their grass was a succulent green. Water flowed with a liveliness equal to the sheep running across the relaxing scenery. Their lives were a triangle with leisure, placidity, and grace for sides, viewing violence as unpleasantries that happened elsewhere.
Still in all, the couple didn't blind themselves to the fact that the Sielkardine they knew was miles outside the sight of their rearview mirror. That place now was a hollow, dreary, and rotting framework of solidified calcium, depressing them into an hours-long nap. By the time Dean and Joyce woke up, night had fallen and the fighting they ran from was now a faraway flurry of cheers, whistles, fireworks, rhythmic claps, horn honks, and beating pots and pans. Listening closely, they heard people sing goodbye and good riddance to Gregorio Sr. and chant for Habsburgo Jr. in 1855. That was their message, that they would be the first two to fall into the gallows when the new leadership begins its reign. Dean held his dread in and hugged Joyce into tearing and trembling out all of hers, revolting Gregorio Jr. and Itzasso into telling them to get their rear ends up because they were in trouble. They shiveringly couldn't believe how little the former first son and his wife resembled the sumptuous twosome most Bromelians grew to admire or revile. Not mad that Dean and Joyce assassinated Alexis Sr. Gregorio's anger stemmed from how the couple left the others in their crew to be stung to death by Brett, Abby, and their lackeys. It's also told the couple that they knew as much as she and her husband did that leaving inferiors without superiors to guide their every move would fatally disarray them. Dean restrained Joyce as she stared her down, irking Gregorio into telling the ladies not to turn onto a regrettable road. Ixasso asked the couple if they liked or hated her and her husband, advising them to keep their answer respectful. Softened by a sigh, Dean asked her and Gregorio when they last interacted with anyone who wasn't one in a million. Eads also countered his ask by bringing up the day Gregorio Sr. and Innocencia spent with Lobotown's commoners. Joyce called that occasion a red herring for a photo opportunity intended to inflate the first couple's egos. Dean overheard Gregorio Sr. accuse the commoners of carrying trichinosis and express his displeasure over Innocencia compelling him to be among them. Joyce quivered at how humiliating it was to finally meet and talk with your hero only for that person to scoop and throw you away like a piece of crap. Gregorio Jr.'s stomach sharpened its juices and got him to almost see why his sisters Isidra and Antonia moved out of the castle to strike out as two. His father's years of reverberant screaming and merciless discipline drove him to contemplate leaving too. All that kept Gregorio Jr. from following his sisters out of his parents' lives was the power and wealth he was acquiring for being the president's son. Although the papers exposed a lot about Gregorio Sr., they didn't bring to light the wealth his son got his hands on or resources and connections he garnered thanks to his father's 
crooked ways. Those assets were hidden in accounts in supposed businesses around the world, the trails of which Gregorio Jr. was diligent in burning to papery chars. Dean interrupted his moment in thought by telling him that others confided in him and Joyce that Gregorio Sr. did and said things that made them feel like they were beggars, vagrants, trolls, and half-wits. Shockingly, Itzaso said that what was told to him was also communicated to her, which she in turn whispered into her husband's ears. Joyce asked her how she could dare try to be on her and Dean's level, yelling that she and Gregorio will never be two of them. Scoffing her laugh, Itzaso asked her if she's defecting to a side that wants her and her boyfriend dead, adding that they'd be effing arslers to make such a switch. Dean and Joyce swore that there was no chance that either of them would defect, said that there was more to the Yellow Cross than supporting Gregorio Sr., and believed that the Yellow Jackets' stingers would rip off if they revolved their nest around one person. Gregorio Jr. described their words as being why he and Itzaso sucked up all their grief over Gregorio Sr. and Innocencia's deaths. That hit Dean and Joyce harder than a train colliding with a small car and twisting it from the inside out. In case he and Itzaso weren't clear, Gregorio told the couple that his parents were killed an hour after they fell into their naps, saying that trying times were ahead for the cross. In Lobotown, Etchelstone's father, Theodore, then the governor of Meseta del Cielo, had a fit that shattered glass, got his radio punched in, and imagined Gregorio Sr. scorning him for his failure to save him. His anger mellowing out, he thanked God for the actions he secretly took well in advance of his leader's downfall. Theodore passed laws that would go into effect immediately in the event that the president is deposed. Dean and Joyce were knocked out, stuffed into vans, and snuck out of Bromelia City in La Cordillera del Este and through La Gran Lanuda. Waking up the next morning, they found themselves handcuffed to their seats in a newly built office. The sedatives hanging Dean and Joyce over made what last happened to them a blur. They had to see the Sunlighter headline Gregorio Sr.'s slaying to regarner yesterday's memories. The couple was about to lean their crying onto each other when a receptionist politely told them not to, as they had a film to watch. Dean and Joyce clamped their nerves as it welcomed them to their new home of American Brumelia. The film called the former Meseta del Cielo a safe haven for Brumelians who refused to roll in the mud with the gluttonous pigs in charge of the people's colony. While Dean and Joyce lived in sanctuary, Brett and Abby were upraised 
heroically for doing Gregorio Sr. and Innocencia in with spraying lead. Those bullets were preceded by slashing knives, bruising clubs, and mocking jibes that saw the sun set and moon rise. It was a slow and painful death to Grizzly for Gabino Sr., Eugenio Jr., and Hobsbugo V to watch or hear, waiting in the dining area until it was over. Alexis Jr., Sybil, and Elspeth breathed in the demise as if their sinuses smelled English roses everywhere they turned. The castle was in a shambles that spared its structure, but when all out on its light, heavy, robust, or fragile contents, cheers of victory from a once angry mob grew fruits out of the vandalism that made garbage out of its stone, glass, wood, fabrics, and crystalline. Such celebrations carried over to the university where Gabino Jr., Roy, and Sinclair were experiencing the happiness of their lives. It was the same excellent spirit that got Habsburgo III jumping boyishly with Clydette, Onofre, Lere, and his other students. That couldn't be said for Carlisle, who made himself the tissue Ferrino, Cobura, Catalino, and the others of his school could cry into. Alored shakily bit his nails, thinking of the homes he denied Clydette, Lere, and Cobura of because he didn't want them, unlike his son, Alored Jr., whom he loved with all his heart. On its own, the shootout was already threatening enough to make him run for his life, but seeing three of the kids he bred from his many one-night stands was a doubling down of that choice, making him afraid of what or who was waiting for him around the corner. Grimsby had Adelino, Courtenay, Burr, and their family stay with him and his brood at the castle he and Carlisle co-owned. Its form possessed much of the same grandeur and fortifications that crafted its citadelic inspiration. That was because it was the fortress that inspired the Herdelerans into building the presidential castle when Bromelia was ten states united by an eagle biting a snake. Built in 1692, but now the Valverde compound, it was how a clan of rich colonials celebrated 200 years of the Spanish Empire. The castle was one of the last surviving landmarks of the long-gone Spanish West America. Its slightly younger yet equally fancy neighbor would house the Merlot family. Joby had no trouble reconciling himself to the end of Gregorio Sr.'s four-term presidency, but Maisie and the others fell into a grievous depression. But that acceptance would be taken back when he heard news that Alexis Jr.'s swearing in as Bromelia's new leader was imminent, pushing him to join his family in their collective fear. That terror drove hundreds of thousands of Bromelians to run from Meseta del Cielo, flee into the Pacific Ocean, or stowed themselves away into nature 
by whatever reachable means or dispatch themselves quickly before the red wasps could do so slowly. Alexis Jr. chose the castle's grand ballroom as his venue to declare himself Bromelia's general secretary before his closest comrades, including his mother, sisters, Hiomara, Maya, and the other women who accompanied him when he visited Olivaldea. Their triumph was unsuccessful in making Alexis Sr.'s assassination hurt less, but that didn't stop them from thanking him for his ultimate sacrifice. Alexis Jr. promised his father that his death will not be forgotten, forgiven, or go unpunished. He identified Dean and Joyce by first and last name, telling them to keep at least one eye open at all times and that he won't stop until his comrades hunt them down. Alexis thumbed his nose at the Masetta del Cielis provincial government for surrendering their autonomy to the United States. He yelled that it was merely their latest in a long list of treasonous actions against the Bromelian people. Alexis hoped that America's haberdasher was listening to him because he wanted to tell him and his successors to watch every move they make as any wrong one could cost them their nation. His threat sprang the United States into severing its political and economic ties with Bromelia, forming a military defense around American Bromelia. This would begin five and a half years of a standoff that would start off and conclude with upheavals so catatonic that the world would never forget them for as long as it rolled on its axis. Those standing with Alexis would have their loyalties tested when the celebrating exploded its last firework. The work every Bromelian was about to be put to would bring pride to some and be a scourge to others, and as fate would have it, Alexis's time in power would share more than a few similarities to Gregorio Jr.'s reign three decades later. And that was Deadly Friday. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to the story I just gave. Share this show with everyone you know. Make sure they share it with everyone they know. Check out my website at www.rss.com slash podcasts slash the dystopian republic. Send me your respectful questions and constructive feedback at Raul Guerrero Jr. 95 at gmail.com. And lastly, support the show via my PayPal at paypal.com slash paypal me slash Raul Guerrero Jr. On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero, and come again for another gripping, thoughtful, and sinister episode of The Dystopian Republic.